Amen, amen, amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we stand before you because the Son has set us free. And when the Son has set us free, we are free indeed. Lord, I pray that we would never take for granted what it took to make that happen. That on a criminal's cross, you were crucified. Dead. Buried. But you did not stay there. You rose again and punched a hole through this world. You have pierced this present darkness with the light of your glory and grace. I thank you that, that right now as we gather, you are in our presence. And as we pray, your attention is on this place as if nothing else in all of your creation mattered to you. May we never take for granted the privilege of being in relationship and conversation with the God who not only is the God of the universe, but the one who came, lived, died, and rose again to make that possible. It is for the glory and the fame of the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the word. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah, May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he laid down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and laid down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Grab your Bibles and find First Kings chapter 18. While you're doing that, I just want to um, remind you of, um, I want to tell you about a, 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 something that, Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, for those of you that don't know, was um, a 19th century, means he lived in the 1800s, preacher. Um, he said this about the church. Believe me, if a church does not pray, it is dead. Instead of putting united prayer last, put it first. Everything will hinge upon the power of prayer in the church. Here's what's interesting about Spurgeon. He is known for being called the Prince of Preachers. Guys, he was a, he was a man who, who in his early 20s became the first ever celebrity pastor. Like people would literally travel from the U.S. to London in the 1800s, which was not necessarily a safe journey and certainly not a short journey. They would travel to London to hear him preach. His, he eventually had congregation sizes of over 10,000 people. And yet, and so he is known, I mean, his, his commentaries on the word of God are legendary. His theology was spot on. I mean, he was a fallen man like the rest of us, but he was used by God in mighty ways. It's why you hear pastors from all denominations quote Charles Spurgeon, because there was just some special anointing on this man. But here's what's interesting. He talked more about prayer than anything else he talked about. This man who was known as the Prince of Preachers, who was all about God's word, talked about prayer all the time. He was so into prayer and so into the power of prayer that not only did he have people praying for the service before the service, as we do, he, in, under the wooden platform on which he preached from, there were a group of people huddled up in this cold, dark place praying for what he was preaching above them. And he would always say, that's where the power comes from. It wasn't from him. And it wasn't even, he was saying, from the word. It was from the effectual work of the word through the prayer of people. And so, 
One of the first quotes I ever heard about Spurgeon, this is when I first went into ministry about 15 years ago when God first called us into full-time ministry. Um, he said this, prayer moves the arm that moves the world. Prayer moves the arm that moves the world. Here's what that means. That means that somehow in God's sovereignty, our prayers partner with his power. And so if that's true, we ought to be a lot more tapped in to that kind of power. It's part of what led us to, if you've been here with us for, for any length of time, you've seen, even just today, you've seen how we reorganized our Sunday gathering to make prayer not the last thing, but the first thing. But that didn't even start when we started regathering in the summer of 2020 when, when we found a place to gather in June. It didn't even start, if you remember, and you were with us back in the Sierra Verde Elementary School days, when in March of 2019, we rearranged our service, including our start time. Used to start at 9.30, started at 10, so that we could move prayer. We had pre-service prayer going for several years, but it was in this classroom off to the side. And we decided we wanted to move it out into the main part of our church gathering. Not like we're doing it now, but it was part of what God was unfolding in us as we became one of the become a people, not just a church that prayed, but a people of prayer. See, here was my problem. We, we have put prayer, we've had a prayer ministry going on here for years and years, right? Even before Brian Tootin was the deacon over it. We had prayer nights on Wednesday nights. We'd meet in people's homes. We would make prayer a big part of our, what we had our, our small group ministry at the time. But I'll be honest, it was always a very frustrating thing because if there was the, like the least attended the least interactive part of our gatherings in any setting Sundays or, or weekdays it was the prayer part our prayer our prayer Wednesday our prayer like we would have a prayer gathering every Wednesday or once a month on the first Wednesday of every month it was lightly attended to say the least and one of the things that struck me and this was not in 2020 or 2019 it was back in 2018 was part of our problem was what we're saying on Sundays prayer is important and what we're doing on Sundays didn't match. Because we'd say prayer was important, but prior to 2019, when we rearranged our service, we would, if you added up in our 90-minute in our service, if you added up the amount of time we spent praying, it was probably 10 minutes. So what we were saying was prayer is really important. What we were doing was praying about like the average church does for maybe 10 minutes during the service time. At all the times that you know normal churches, even ours, pray. Before the message, after the message, those kinds of things. So the Lord has been unfolding in us this desire to not just be a church that prays, but a people who pray. And, and it's what, you're, what you've seen in the first hour of our service is just a pro, an overflow of that. But there's still work to be done here, guys. What we want to try to figure out as a people is now, how do we take what we're experiencing here on Sundays in our gathering and move it out from here, individually and collectively? Because there are some things that your prayer life says about you or tells you a little bit about in, just, in, in your corporate beliefs and also in your individual beliefs. Here are a few of them. Do you believe God is there? Like, do you really believe God is there? If you do, do you believe God cares? Right? Do you believe that Jesus wants real relationship with you? Not just in the sense of Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm not, I don't mean that. I mean, he wants to have ongoing conversation with you. And do you really believe he calls you friend? Because that's what he calls you. If you're his... He says, you are no longer slaves. Now I call you friend. John 15, 15. And friends talk, right? Friends talk together. What we came to the conviction of is what Spurgeon said in this. And you're going to hear several Spurgeon quotes today. If we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of the Christian. And I would say that prayer meeting for us right now, not, we're, we're looking at, we're going to have a, a, a praise and worship night here on, the, on Friday the 10th of September. There will be prayer involved in that. We're hoping to start doing things like that more regularly, even in this space, but even in our D groups, in our other gathered times, and individually, do we put prayer first? 
Because as Spurgeon said, a prayerful church is a powerful church. Why? Well, I've spent some time as we were going through the um, solo, um, the, um, the, five, so the Summer in the Sola series. I we started out with the Imago Day, And I talked about how did God bring people to life? How did he, he created Adam. How did he bring the big ball of mud to life? He breathed into him. I love how Spurgeon put it. Prayer is the breath of God in man returning back to whom it came. So that's where the convert, we're breathing the spirit of God in. We're breathing him in as we're in the word, as we're in fellowship, as we're, as we're meditating on him and who he is. And then in our conversation back to him, we're just breathing out what he's already placed into us. And that's what prayer is. So we're starting this series called The Secret, um, the, the, the Secret to Prayer. And, and one of the things about this series that we're, gonna, we're starting in is, one, I, I'm so I, I've had to fight the urge all week to tell you everything there is to say about prayer. Because we've taught on prayer here before, but usually it's like a, maybe one week on prayer here when it came up in the toolkit series. Or um, if it came up in Daniel, we would talk about the, what, how, how prayer worked when we were going through the book of Daniel. Or so, but we've never taken the time to go, hey, we need to spend, an ex if we really want to be a people of prayer, we need it to just overwhelm our conversation as a family. Not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. So as Brian Tootner and I were talking and praying even a little bit throughout the summer, and we're thinking, okay, how does this work? Well, one is, it can't just be a one or two Sunday thing. So we're going to spend the next, I don't even know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven Sundays and retreat talking about the different aspects of prayer. So I'm not covering everything there is to cover about prayer because we're going to spend a bunch of time talking about prayer. And um, towards the end of the series, Brian Tootin's going to share one of the messages. In a couple weeks, Lord willing, the author of this book that we have out in the lobby where I got the title for the series, The Secret to Prayer, the author of this book is going to come and preach that Sunday on the 12th, Lord willing. So be praying for that because you guys are going to love him. Hopefully not too much, but you're going to love him. <laughs> Um, really, really, uh, really dynamic young theologian, I guess I would say. And he's not that young, but um, younger than you would expect an author and, and professor and guy with a doctorate to be. Um, but, we're gonna, but we have these books available out in the lobby uh, at the table. We're not going to go through, I'm not going to ever open this book up on a Sunday that I know of. That's not what we're here for. We're here for this book. We still have the daily readings that are going to go along with each week's topic and carry on the conversation with what you hear today. But what this book is available for is to help flavor your conversation. Whether that's your conversation with your family, your spouse, or just with you and the Lord. To just give you a different perspective on prayer. So, so we're talking about the secret to prayer. Today, the topic that we're talking about is the secret to the power of prayer. So before we go any further, I just want to ask you our first talking points question. I'm going to have you just turn to your neighbor quickly and answer this. How is your prayer life? Here are your, remember your talking points are on the back of your, um, are in your insert now, in your bulletin. They're on the back of your insert if you needed one. Um, I'm, I don't know if we have any left or not, but somebody I'm sure could get you one. But here's the question. How is your prayer life? Here are your only three choices. I know there's probably others. These are the three I'm giving you. Strong, struggling, or stagnant. Guys, this is a safe place. One of the things we talked about in our foundations class on Tuesday and on um, Tuesday morning and Tuesday night, and I think I mentioned even last week in the message, is guys, people who are struggling with their walk feel like the last place they can come for that struggle is the church. And that needs to, we're going to kill that thing now, right? So if, if you never pray, which one of these three are you? Stagnant. Stagnant. So, so here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to risk being honest. Just turn to your neighbor. You don't, I'm going to give you like five seconds. Turn to your neighbor and say out loud which of those three you are. Go. Okay. So I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and say how many of you are struggling and how many of you are stagnant and how many of you are um, strong in your prayer life. But here's... Here's what I do want to ask. What kind of criteria are you using to measure that? What kind of... So you just gave an answer to somebody, hopefully. What kind of criteria did you mentally use to give that answer? I'm asking. Raise your hand. Sean. 
Okay, so, what I, and, and thank you for sharing where you're at, but you don't, you don't have to share where you're at if you don't want to share with the whole body that you're struggling in prayer. But you can. It's a safe place. Thank you, Sean, for modeling that. It's a safe place. Um, but what he said was because well, like the, the, the barometer for that for Sean was the amount of praying he does. Good. Keep going. Tina. Okay, so, I, so in case you couldn't hear Tina, she said, my, the struggle might be that you're actually praying, the amount is okay, but you don't actually have faith in, or remember we talked about our, our part of faith is, we don't actually believe what we're praying is going to happen. Right? Good. Awesome. Because that is, and that's actually a biblical struggle of faith. Is Scott. the prayer self-based? Is the prayer self-based? Good. So your barometer for how you're doing in prayer is also about... Not just how much you're praying and how much you believe in what you're praying. Is it like the power behind what you're praying? But also the things you're praying for. And you can see there's, and we could probably go on for a long time, but you can see that there's a lot of things that we think about. And guys, this is not a message about just pray more, right? This is a series over the next month, couple of months that will hopefully just encourage us to pray more because we're doing it. Because we're like, man, I, I can't not pray anymore. Because we've all heard about the obstacles to prayer, like being too busy, like being distracted, like not, you know, all those things, right? I'm not here to tell you about those obstacles. We're, I'm not even going to talk about those obstacles next week. What we want to talk about is just what prayer is and why it even matters. And the Holy Spirit will take that and turn you into a person of prayer if you will let him. If you will let him. So today's training thought is what is the secret to a power-filled prayer night? But guys, we're not going to sit here and talk about, well, it's, it's our, not prayer night, but prayer, prayer life. It's not, it's, not, it's not looking at, here's, here's a prayer list, here's different styles of praying. It's none of that. It really is, here are these three things that we're going to see from Elijah today. The, the secret to a power-filled prayer, just as our launching out of the gate in this series on prayer, is the first is, we have to call in the name of Jesus. The second is, it's crying out to him. It's having a heart that is vulnerable, right? And the third is creating space. And I love how without even knowing it, everybody who has shared so far today, from RJ who shared about the D groups to Mark to um, even, even um, like some of the stuff the music team was talking about it's, it's, and, and what was even prayed during the prayer time. It was, are we making space for a conversation with the Lord? And that was what Tina, that's exactly what, that's part of what you were praying. It's like, just in the busyness of life, do I even make space? So we're going to finish there, Lord willing. So let's look at our first training truth, calling on his name. So how, so, so what is the secret to living this power-filled prayer life? The first is calling on his name. So open up your Bibles. I told you to do that already. I didn't. Um, to 1 Kings chapter, um, nine, or chapter 18. And I'm going to start in verse 20 with our first point. Now guys, this is a familiar story. We've taught on this a lot. In fact, Jeff, when he taught two weeks ago, talked about this part of the story. So, and, and it's probably the most, this scene of calling fire down on Mount Carmel, it's probably the most well-known scene in Elijah's life. And I'm going to try and go through it as fast as I can, because frankly, what we're going to find out is it's not even, it's not even like in the top three of the most important moments of Elijah's life. Like his biggest moment, I mean, you would think fire falling down and, and destroying like, when he prays for it would be like, this would be his number one thing. It was not. Elijah's number one moment with God. And, and that's part of what we're going to see. However, how he prays here is very important. So, in verse 20 of, of chapter 18 of 1 Kings, it says this. This is the word of the Lord. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah, so Ahab was the king at the time. He was clueless. We'll see that. But he was the king. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord, Yahweh, is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Guys, do you remember? This is the message from last week. So I'm not going to belabor it. There are only two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God. And this is what Elijah is saying. If God is God, get busy about his kingdom. If Baal, who is one of the gods of this world, is God, then get busy about him. But stop this back and forth. So he keeps going. 
Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. So they were, this is how they would sacrifice offerings, including God's people would, and the Baal worshippers would as well. And, it will and I will prepare the other bull and lay it in the wood and put no fire under it. And, I will call, and, and you will call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, sounds good to me. That's well spoken. Right? Here's the thing. The people that he called to the mountain were, what, were really interested in what was about to happen. But they were solely spectators. They had no interest in glorifying God or seeing God show up. They just wanted to see what was about to happen next. They wanted some entertainment. Now, guys, this is not just a scene that happened around 1,000 or 900 or so um, B.C. This is, a, this is, um, this is re relevant today. So many people sitting in churches today, right now, I mean, like literally today, are just looking for the show. They have no interest in the glory of God, right? And, and, they don't even, and a lot of them don't even know it. But they're like, yeah, sounds good to us. Guys, here's, here, I just as a quick aside, the Lord who answers, the God who answers by fire, he is God. Here's the reality. We know this from the end of the story. Our God will answer again by fire, right? He isn't going to flood the world again. He's going to burn the whole thing up and make the new heaven and the new earth. Our God is going to answer again by fire. The, and we cannot... Forget that that is ultimately how he's going to prove himself. But you got to remember something else. What did Jesus say when he was talking to the people that were following him? In Luke 18, he says, but when the Son of Man comes again to answer the second time with fire, is he going to find faith on the earth? I mean, I, I was, like, he was under some sort of such holy discouragement at the time. God, Jesus was. That he was like, I'm not sure when I come back, I'm going to find anybody here that believes in me. Now, I know he knew different, but, but he was like, guys, come on, get with the program. Church at Laodicea, don't be lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth if, you're, if you stay lukewarm. Let's keep going. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for your many and call upon the name of your God, and I, and, and, but put no fire under it. And then he says... Um, and, and so then he, and then he says, oh, and then look at verse 26. And they took the bull that it was given to them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that, they limped around the altar that they had made. Guys, Spurgeon said this about, about not just who we pray to, but back to Tina's point, the belief in our prayer. He said, there is no better thermometer to your spiritual temperature than the measure of your intensity when you pray. Now, I, I don't. Now, I, I share that here because I want to say they are going to go on and from the outside look very intense. I, it says. So let's keep going. A, at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, "Cry aloud!" So he's like, "Cry louder!" For he is. For he is a god. Either he is musing, so he's just thinking deeply about stuff, or he's relieving himself, going to the bathroom, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and he must be awakened. So, so probably not in great um, example about how to engage the culture. Elijah is mocking their false belief, like, like in their face. And they cried out louder, and they cut themselves and, and, until blood gushed out of them. Verse 29, and midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of ob oblation, which just means the time of the evening offering. But there was no voice. No one answered them. No one paid attention. Why didn't anyone pay attention? Because there was no one listening because of who they were praying to. So the amount of praying, the intensity of your praying... All, no offense, Charles Spurgeon, and, and I know what he meant in the context of that quote I shared, but matters not if you're not praying to the right one, right? Thus, calling on his name. Guys, they're doing a lot of screaming. They cried aloud. They cried aloud. They raved on. No one's answering. So it's not about, cry, it's not about calling out, just calling out. It's about calling out 
on the name of the Lord. Because look at what happens next. Verse 30, then Elijah said to the people, come near me. It's his way of going, hey guys, huddle up. Huddle up, because we're about to see something really important here. So he says, so he says, hey, everybody, huddle up. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. I'm going to summarize the next few verses. So he, so he creates the altar with the 12 stones as the picture of Israel. right? He has them put the, um, the calf on the altar. He has them dig a trench that will hold about four gallons of water around the thing. He has them fill it up with water jugs three times. Which, oh, by the way, this whole thing is set up perfectly. Elijah, like the Lord, and, and here's why. Because here, here's how this moment comes in Elijah's life. It's not like Elijah was just walking along and all of a sudden he went, hey, this seems like a good idea. I think I'll call fire down. He's been in constant conversation in the context of 1 Kings 18, i.e. chapters 16 and 17. If you read those chapters, you'll see that Elijah's in this conversation with the Lord. And that is what's led him to this place. And so now he's going, okay, the, the Baals, Mount Carmel, I was there when I was blessed to get to go to Israel back in 2017. Mount Carmel is where they worshipped Baal. And they would, they would have moments like this, hoping that something miraculous would show up. Oh, by the way, there was also a massive drought going on caused by Elijah, who prayed for no rain three and a half years before this. So he's, he is throwing it in their face saying, hey, I know you guys don't have any water, but what you do have, come dump it right here. He isn't just making the wood wet so that it proves the point that God can even light on fire wet wood, right? Like, like we got to get past like that sort of like small-mindedness of God of, well, you know, he was just trying to show them, look, I, my God can even ignite wet wood. No, he was saying, hey, he was, he was just making a point to them even in the midst of their drought. So before he prays, Here's another Spurgeon quote. Remember, this is the man that was called the Prince of Preachers. That man said, I would rather teach one man to pray than 10 men to preach. The Prince of Preachers, who probably did more to shape the teaching of God's word in his time than anybody else in human history, said, I would rather teach one dude to pray than 10 to teach God's word. That's how powerful he believed prayer was. Okay, so let's pick, let's pick it up and see how, how Elijah prays. Verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came, came near and said, he doesn't just say, you know, whatever it was the Baal worshippers were saying. He says, O Lord, as if to make it specific, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, which is Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Right? He is saying, you're the one that led me here and it is in your name. Oh, answer, answer me, O oh Lord, O oh Yahweh. That's why it's in all caps. Answer me that this people may know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that, and that you have turned your turned. I'm sorry, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and everything else. The water, all of it, it didn't matter. It was gone. Licked up all the water. Verse 39. And when the people saw it, they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And there was great national revival. No. See, here's the problem. Those people were convinced they weren't converted. They're like, man, we just saw this amazing thing happen. But there was no heart change. Guys, it's, it's no different, and I don't want to step on toes here, but I'm telling you, it's no different than the people that want to come to a church service, including the people that come to this church service, who want an emotional experience. They were, they were moved by the emotion of the moment. Now, guys, if you've been here very long, you know I'm not anti-emotion. Right? And, and if you haven't been very long, let the laughter prove the point. Right? I am not anti-emotion. What I'm saying is if what we need is some emotional worship experience to get us through the next day, here's the, here's the great... And I'm, and I'm even all for emotional worship experiences. I am. 
I mean, I love it when the music moves me at that part, of, or your prayer time moves me to tears. I love that. But if that's what I'm counting on to get me through the next day, you and I both know that doesn't make it through the afternoon. It just doesn't. And so if we're just moving from emotional experience to emotional experience, guess where we find ourselves? In the eddy people. Right? We have got, our faith is about so much more than that. So these people, I mean, look how moved by emotion they are. Oh, by the way, verse 40, they help Elijah slaughter 450 people. That is pretty moved by emotion. And yet, if you read the rest of that chapter, chapters, they are gone after this moment. It didn't last through the afternoon. They didn't get the blood off their hands before their emotional experience with God was gone. And man, that is a scary place for us. Groupthink is not a good place to be. One more um, Spurgeon quote before we have our, our next talking point. He says this, whether we like it or not, Asking is the rule of the kingdom. If you may have everything by asking in his name, in his name, remember, he's just quoting Jesus. If you ask in my name, it will be given to you. And we'll come back to this thought in a few minutes. I beg you to see how absolutely vital prayer is. Guys, especially for those of you that are staunch sovereignty of God people, God knows everything, and he does. God God has power over everything, and he does. So why does my prayer matter? Because prayer moves the arm that moves the world. The same God that ordained the outcome, the event, is also the God who ordains the means, and that's you and I getting on our knees and praying. And, and ultimately, what Spurgeon is saying here is, guys, you got to ask. right? Because, and there's reasons you need to ask. And we'll talk about those as we go today and throughout this series. But we got to ask. So here's, but we got to ask rightly. We got to ask in his name. So here's the talking point question. It's the only one I'm going to give you even a couple minutes to talk about. It says this, we are called to pray in Jesus' name. But what does it sound like to invoke the name of Jesus in our prayers? And why does that matter? What does it sound like? So I'm just going to give you a minute, one minute. What does it sound like to invoke the name of Jesus in your prayers. Go. Okay, so what does it sound like to invoke the name of Jesus? Just real quick answers, please, because I know we're running, we're running short on time. So real, what, what does it sound like to invoke the name of Jesus? Exalt his name on high. Exalt his name on high. So in your prayer, even, you can exalt his name like while you're praying. Good. What else? Gratefulness. Gratefulness. Good. Quote the word because he is the word. Quote the word because he is the word. Awesome. So good. Yes. Your will, not my will, be done. Awesome. Like, quote Christ, even. Guys, I mean, there's obviously, there's a reason we say, like, in Jesus' name, amen. It isn't just a nice, it's not like a comma with a nice ending to the sentence or to the paragraph of your prayer. It really is invoking the name of Christ. Do you remember how they healed the lame beggar when they're walking into the, the temple? They're like, I have nothing to give you, but here's what I do have. I have the name of Jesus. Now get up. Right, there is power in his name. In the name of Jesus, demons flee. Not in your name, not in my name. Not in cross train. In the name of Jesus, demons flee. Like there is power in the name. But it doesn't have to be just saying his name. It can also be just acknowledging his name as powerful. Like that's a huge part of our prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Right? Do we, guys, this is why, and again, I might step on some toes here. This is why I'm not a huge fan of the, hey, daddy, how are you prayers. Right? I, I, I get that we can cry out to him, Abba, Father. I get that he is our father. I get that we, come, we should come to him as a dad with, our, with his arms open wide, and, and he's never a dad like this. But, but doing somewhere between that reality and diminishing his name by just saying, hey, daddy, yeah, not, no, he is Yahweh. He is Lord. They won't even speak his name. Right, that's how powerful it is. So, so we do need to be careful of that, I think. Let me go back to um, the, the passage. So look at verse 41. We're not, I'm, I'm just going to summarize the end of this chapter. So I mentioned a minute ago that, that three and a half years prior to this scene, Elijah had prayed for no rain. Now he spends, he, he goes and he starts praying for rain right after the scene on Mount Carmel. He prays seven times earnestly. And the word earnestly there in the Hebrew means like, I'm not even going to do it right now because I throw my back out. He squats down, like gets down, squats down and puts his head between his legs and is just praying like, Lord, bring rain. Lord, bring rain. Gets up, no rain. He does that seven times and then it starts to pour down rain. And then he outruns Ahab 17 miles to Jezreel. Right now, we're going to pick it up in our second point and look at the secret power of the, the secret to living a power-filled life is calling on His name, but it's also crying out to Him. So now He has seen God bring fire down on Mount Carmel. He has seen God, while He's praying, bring rain after three and a half years. Now look at what happens to poor Elijah next. Here's before we get to, to the second scene of Elijah. Do you remember what James says about Elijah? Just to, just to show you that what we're about to read is way more important in Elijah's life than even the Mount Carmel scene. He says what? He was a man with, with a nature just like us. Right? He was a man just like us. And then he says, and when he prayed for rain, it rained. I'm like, wait a minute. What, wouldn't you say like, and when he prayed for fire to fall on Mount Carmel and slaughter 450 of the enemy, that that ought to be like the defining moment of, your, of the prophet? Apparently James didn't think so. Right? And then if you read on in James, even the way James can, puts that in there, he's really talking more about Elijah's weakness than his strength. So let's, let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 19. These are the, pa the passages that Emma read before, before we started. It says, Ahab told Jeze Jezebel, so that was his wife, all that Elijah had done and how he had filled, killed all the prophets of the sword. And she was, by the way, a huge fan of those prophets. When Jezebel sent a messenger to Eliza and said, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. So he's, she's threatening his life. She's saying, if I, may the gods kill me if I don't get to you by tomorrow. It tells you a little bit about the state of the kingship in, the, in, the, in God's people, doesn't it? That Ahab's letting his nutso wife run things. And that was not a gender slight. This particular woman happened to be nutso. Okay. Verse 3. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than the fathers. Because have you ever been there? I mean, have you ever been to that place? Like even after you've seen, and sometimes especially after you've seen God show up in just really miraculous ways. And all of a sudden you're like, what one bit of news. Because this is my reality almost every Sunday afternoon. And, I'm, and, and most of the bad news I'm getting is the stuff I'm feeding to myself. Man, I talked too long. Man, I was too harsh. Man, I was this. Man, I was that. Man, I, 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 I. I'm ready to retire. I'm ready to resign my pastorate. I just saw God do amazing things. Just had an amazing time with my church family, and just like that, it can turn on us. So I'm not here to judge Elijah. I'm here to say, man, brother, I get it. And and sometimes God puts us in those places so that 
we will cry out to him so that we'll remember that he is the only one we can cry out to. Spurgeon said it this way, the best style of prayer is that which cannot be called anything else but a cry. Guys, you want to know what it looks like to live a power-filled prayer life? A lot of tears. A lot of tears. I'm not a crier. You will be. I I didn't mean me. But But thank you. I'm saying many of you, I don't cry. Guys, let, as we, I, I am going to, I am praying right now. Lord, I want to pray right now for those of us in this room or those that are online listening um, that say that we're, we're just not emotional. We're just not criers. I want to pray that not today, but today and through this series that you would use this to soften our hearts. If Jesus wept, if David wept, let us weep in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's, let's keep going. Because if we turn to God, he will turn to us. Now look what happens. It says in verse 5, um, second half of verse 5, And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. So God graciously, as God often does, always, do, well, frankly, always does, um, he provides him exactly what he needs in the moment. It says, he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked with hot stones and a jar of water and he ate and drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came to him again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for this journey is too great for you. Man, isn't that true about our lives? And so God graciously comes and he feeds us and he cares for us and he picks up one of the lines in the songs we sang, he picks our weary head up. Right? And this is what he's doing for Elijah. He says, he arose and he ate and he drank and he went in that strength for, of food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Verse 9, then, the, then, then he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? Guys, our prayer life is probably the greatest barometer, the greatest thermometer, the greatest measure of whether or not we trust God or not. Nothing else we do. Because you know my soapbox, being in, reading and responding to God's word every day. I'm here to tell you that how much you pray, when you pray, the kind of things you pray about, all those things we talked about at the beginning about how we measure our prayer lives, it says more about your heart for God than any time you spend in God's word. Right? It, Study after study will show you that if when they survey Christians, that, the num- that, that when they say, what is the spiritual discipline you struggle with the most? It's prayer. Study after study shows that when they survey churches, what, when, when they say, what do you think the weakest part of your church is? It's prayer. Why? Because prayer, frankly, is hard. It is work. I, I loved where Mark took us with the, with the Eddie moment because it, it, is, it is grabbing a hold of the oars and, and rowing your boat back out into the flow of water, that is prayer. And the, and the stream, the river, is the word. Right? But, but we have got to be willing to do the work. And that brings us to our last point. So how do we live this power-filled prayer life? Calling on his name, crying out to him, and then creating space for his presence. So the question is, where is the power? This is what God is going to show Elijah next. This is what God is trying. He's trying to say, God, he's trying to tell, here's what he's trying to tell Elijah. Here's what, so what happened to Elijah? How did he get from, everybody huddle up. We're going to watch God do something amazing. I'm going to pray seven times. We're going to see God bring rain to this person who hears a word and he runs. How did he get there? Here's how he got there. He got his eyes focused on the wrong thing. Because when he was calling fire down on Mount Carmel, when he was praying for rain, who was he praying the glory for? God. The Lord who answers by fire, he is God. He was praying God's glory for God's kingdom. He gets to this point in his life and everything is me, me, me. It is enough now, Lord, take my life. I am the only one left. Guys, I'll leave you a little secret backstory. He knew he wasn't the only one left. Because in chapters 16, 17, and 18, he talks about the other prophets of God that are still in hiding. Right, so, so he is good, but he's gotten to this place where he believes he's the only one. He's gotten his eyes on the wrong thing. He's got, instead of looking at get, bringing God glory, he's looking at his own ministry and going, I'm a failure. These people that were all on fire for the Lord grew cold overnight, and here we go again. 
right? And, and he's, he is caught up in his own self. And what God wants to show him is it's not just that the power is in the thing you're praying for. The power isn't just when the fire falls. The power is in the act of praying. What, what God wants to show Elijah, what God wants to show you and me, is that it is in the act of praying that we are most in tune with him. How? Because it's in the act of praying that we are in the biggest moment of need. Like acknowledging our own inability is what I mean by need. That it, it may not even, you may not even be praying for something you personally need. You might be praying for the people in Afghanistan. But what you realize in that moment is that I personally can do nothing for those people or their families who died over there. Right? And, and, and in that moment, I am completely dependent on the Lord. Lord, you have to because I can't. Right? That's what, that's, that is the dialogue of prayer. Lord, you have to because I can't. But the problem is, back to Scott's point, is too often we pray such, even when we do pray, we pray such selfish and minor prayers. Now, don't get me wrong, and please do not hear this. Does God want us to be praying for healing for people that we love? Absolutely. When I found out my dad had, was diagnosed with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's five years ago, I started praying right away, Lord, Slow it down. Lord, heal him. We had other people doing that. But I also started praying a, a, small, a small thing. Healing for my father. I get that it's not a small thing. In the grand scheme of the universe, it's a small thing. I, I started praying that small thing with a kingdom mindset. Instead of just praying, Lord, heal my father, I prayed, Lord, heal my father. And while he's struggling, heal him spiritually. And God did. I loved how Tina prayed for her dad. She's like, Dad, pray, heal my dad. But, I, but, but the growth I've seen in my dad spiritually in his 22 days in the hospital. Right? What God is trying to show us now is it is not just in the thing you're praying for. or It is in the act of praying that we have power. Because it's, it's when we get to our point of dying to self, Guys, prayer is like where self goes to die. And frankly, I'll just speak for me. I could use a lot more self-death in my life. So that's part of our motivation to be better prayers. Okay, so look at verse 10. And he, he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord. He's like, Lord, I've been doing all this great stuff for you, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, am the only one left. And they seek my life to take it away. That, that is not true. And Elijah knows it, but he's now convinced himself it's true. And it says, so, and then God says this to him. Go out and stand on the mountain before me. And the Lord passed by in the great and strong wind of the mountain and broke up the pieces of the rocks before the Lord. That's some serious wind. But the Lord was not in the wind. And then the wind, the earthquake, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. There's no really good English way to translate that, the Hebrew there. It actually means something to the effect of a silence that could be heard. Do you hear that? Do you hear the AC unit going? Have you ever been anywhere that is just silent? It's hard in our, in our world. Right? I mean, even, even when you go out camping, there's airplane noise sometimes. There's, if you've ever been somewhere where it is really silent, like when we've gone into the Cave of the Domes down on our Grand Canyon hike, and you go way back in there, and there is literally no light. Like, like you turn off everybody's flashlights, and you get everybody to actually be quiet, which takes an act of God for some reason. And if you've been there, you know. And you go, okay, just take your hand and put it into, and you will actually hit yourself in the face because there is so, there's, you can't, there's no depth perception. But here's the other part. It is so quiet that you can actually, like it starts to press in on, I mean, I'm telling you, you can feel it with your eardrums. It's weird, right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, he, he showed him all this stuff and he's like, I'm not in the big moment. Doesn't mean he can't be. But what he's trying to show Elijah, he's trying to say, Elijah, here's the problem. When you were looking for the big moment and I showed up, you started thinking that was about you too. It's about me. And he's like, I'm, I, I'm not in these big moments. I'm in the nothing moment. 
I'm in the space that you make just to be you and me. Just to hear that still, small voice. Guys, I do want to say, we'll talk about this more. It's not an audible hearing in the sense of the Lord is telling you, like, like, the, like the word of the Lord. He's not giving you a new word. But it is the Holy Spirit impressing upon your heart, this is what God wants for you in this moment. And that's the conversation you're having, right? When you make that time. Did God give Elijah what he needed? Or what, I'm sorry, did he give him what he asked for? No, he asked to die. Did he give him what he needed? Yeah, you know what he said? He said, here, here's some food, here's some water, get back in the fight. I'm gonna show you what's true, get back in there. You just keep doing what I've told you to do. As we go into this time of response, and the music team comes up, and um, they're gonna start passing the trays around like we did last week, and then I'll come back up and lead us in the partaking of the elements. Guys, I wanna ask you this question. At the end of verse 13, God says this to Elijah. So he shows up, he says, Elijah hears this still small voice, and then that voice whispers to his spirit, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? Now guys, I don't believe for a minute because I know the heart of our God and so do you that he was not ridiculing Elijah. He was not looking at Elijah going, what are you doing here? Like seriously? But if some of us feel like that's how God talks to us. Here's, what he was, here's how I think he was saying it. It's not clear in the Hebrew how he was saying it, but here's how I think he was saying it. What are you doing here? Like, what are you, what are you doing here? Have you forgotten who I am? Have you forgotten how much, and even more than who I am and what you've seen me do, have you forgotten how much I care about you? Right, so as, as you respond to this time, when we get ready to take communion and you hear God's word read over you, I want to ask you a question. Is God near to you? Do you believe that he wants relationship with you? Do you believe he longs to hear from you? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Father, I just come to you and I thank you for the truth of Elijah's life, for an example of a man who struggled. He struggled because life is hard. Because the enemy is real. Because the flesh is weak. He struggled because he was a man just like us, with a nature like ours. But you're a God who comes and seeks after those people. You're a God who brings hope to the hopeless, help to the helpless. You don't always give us what we want, but you always give us what we need. I pray right now that you would remind us of what we're doing here. And that that would usher us into your presence. In Jesus' name.